Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to the Flight Pass podcast. For this episode, we're joined by retired Group Captain Tim Wilbond, OBE. Tim, start by telling the listeners a little bit about your military background as you go to a little bit of the way to explain the subject you're here to talk about today. Uh, James, good morning. Yes, I did 31 years in the Royal Air Force, a majority of it as uh, what is now called an aerospace battle manager, essentially an air defence battle manager. And I've always held, obviously, a keen interest in all matters relating to the history of battle management. And uh, that's really where the basis of today's talk is all about. Okay, so what is your subject for today? Okay, the subject today, I've entitled a Dowding, a debt unpaid. Okay, because I mean, obviously a lot of people listening to this will know Dowding and is associated with the Battle of Britain, but I don't think a lot of people know a great deal about what happened to him after the war and how that came about. So I'll let you start the start. James, thank you very much. Well, since 1066, there have been two battles that were fought to secure the country from the threat of imminent invasion and uh, potential subjugation. These were the Battle of Gravelines, otherwise known as the Armada, and 352 years later, of course, the Battle of Britain. Now, Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding, later the Honourable Lord Dowding, first Baron Dowding of Bentley Priory, was the Commander-in-Chief of Fighter Command. And his mission, the one he actually identified very clearly, was to prevent an invasion. Unlike Lord Howard, who commanded the naval forces at Gravelines, Dowding's contribution to victory went well beyond that of just being commander-in-chief of the forces that fought the Battle of Britain. Now, we must actually look at a key issue in the story, and that's Dowding's character. Now, like every human being, he was a mix of positive and less positive characteristics. But in the words of General Pyle, who worked for Dowding as commander of the anti-aircraft artillery, a difficult man, a self-opinionated man, a most determined man, a man who knew more than anybody about all aspects of aerial warfare. Of the great service leaders, Dowding was the outstanding airman I met in the war. He was undoubtedly taciturn, reserved, difficult to deal with. But on the other hand, he was intelligent, determined, had an analytical mindset and knew his business. He did not, however, take kindly to stupidity and was less than tactful in his dealings with others. And this did not sit well with the air ministry. His less positive characteristics fed a narrative of an uncooperative man, resistant to new ideas, who was not commanding the day battle very effectively and ignoring the night battle. But let's just step back and look at Dowding's achievements over 10 years prior to the war, because that's the period of his contribution. His contribution covered, we can summarise in five headings, the development of the eight-gun fighters, the building of the Dowding system, harnessing science as an instrument of defence, opposing Churchill's desire to send large numbers of fighter squadrons for the defence of France, and commanding during the Battle of Britain. Now, let's look at those in a little more detail. In 1931, Great Britain won the Schneider Trophy outright. And this prompted the Air Ministry to challenge the UK's aircraft industry to build a land-based fight that could fly as fast as possible. However, the air staff wanted to add a caveat, and that was that the aircraft should be a biplane. 
Dowding, in his role as a member for research and development, vetoed this. And as we know, the hurricane and the Spitfire emerged. He also influenced the development of fighters in many ways. And to paraphrase Dowding on one of these, as if the monsters of Chicago can have a bulletproof glass, so can the fighter pilots. Turning to the Dowding system, all tactical battles have to be controlled and managed, including tactical air battles. Without such command and control, defeat is by far the most likely outcome, and especially if the enemy has a superior force, which of course it did in the Battle of Britain. There are three imperatives necessary for a commander to deliver victory in a tactical battle. Firstly, he needs to see and understand what is happening in his battle space, and Dowding's battle space was enormous. He needs to know where his own forces are and their readiness to fight. And he needs the wherewithal to transmit orders and instructions in time to control matters and receive battle reports without delay. Now, command and control is a human function, but it is enabled by technology. The system of command and control that was developed became known as the Dowding system. It was made possible through the discovery of radar. That was a key enabling technology. But the system comprised a brew of technologies, processes, command centers, highly trained people, all tied together in an extensive network of ground-to-ground and ground-to-air communication systems. Quite simply, the Downing system provided the wherewithal for commanders all levels to control and manage the air battles. Downing commented in his dispatch, the system as a whole had been built up by successive steps over a period of about four years, and I was not dissatisfied the way in which it stood the test of war. Rather muted, but it is true the Dowding system was far from perfect and had many frailties, but it did the job it was required to do. Dowding is often referred to as the architect of the system, but this isn't truly accurate. The development of all large complex systems need a guiding hand, someone to drive matters, someone to focus matters. And this person has to have vision, be single minded, focused, and fully understand all the parts of the system and their interdependencies. Dowding was that man. Let's look at science. In 1914, prior to the battle, Dowding wrote, the war will be won by science thoughtfully applied to operational requirements. The application of science to develop technologies to satisfy complex operational imperatives is one of the lesser-known factors that delivered victory in the Battle of Britain and the Blitz. Under the scientific leadership and direction of such men as Henry Tizard, Watson Watt, Harvey Jones, and many others, science provided the bricks from which the Downing system was constructed. Downing had a close working relationship with Tizard in particular. And the story that illustrates that was told to me by the current Lord Downing, who in turn was told by his great aunt that one day she walked into the living room of Downing's residence in Stanmore to find him on the floor, with Tizard on the floor, a large map stretched between them, discussing the sighting of the radar surveillance systems. Dowding drew scientists into the operational community, and they were embedded in command headquarters to work alongside their operational colleagues. And this is a practice that endures to this day. Why did Dowding oppose Churchill? Churchill was committed to the sport of France in her fight against the invading Nazi hordes. 
and he kept pressing for more and more fighter squadrons to be sent to France. Downing was appalled at the wastage rate of his scarce resource, and his disquiet was shared by the then Chief of Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Cyril Newell. But it is the letter that Dowding wrote and his attendance at the War Cabinet meeting at which he challenged Churchill that are probably best known for causing Churchill to change his mind. Dowding believed that by opposing Churchill and causing him to back down, he held a grudge against him. History, I think, would indicate that this was not the case. Churchill loved a winning general and for a long time saw Dowding in this light. Using the principle of centralised command and decentralised control, Dowding laid down a structure for the command and control of the battle that worked very well indeed, and he delegated the immediate operational control and management of the tactical air battle to his fighter group commanders, providing them with the directive on how they were to operate. But his command was so much more than just the fighter force, albeit the fighters were the principal weapon of defence. It was a very large command and extended over the whole of the United Kingdom. Let, let, let me examine that very briefly. Under Dowding's command and operational command, there were eight principal subordinate commanders. Looking at the ones who deal with the surveillance system first, there were two. There were the Observer Corps was commanded by Air Commodore Warrington Morris. He controlled 39 Observer Group headquarters, each of which had between 30 and 34 observer centres reporting to it. The other organisation was 60 Group, which was commanded by Air Commodore Gregory, and he had the operational control of 25 long-range surveillance units enabled by radar and 32 long-range surveillance units and 25 low-level surveillance units. Now, if we briefly look at the fighter groups we talked about a few moments ago, Ten Group was responsible for the southwest of England and was commanded by A Vice Marshal Brandt. Now, each group covered a geographical area across the country, but each group was subdivided into smaller groups called sectors, and each sector had its own commander, and each sector was allocated by Dowding a number of squadrons between one and four, and that depended on where that sector sat in the overall disposition of forces. 11 Group was commanded by Air Vice Marshal Park, and that was responsible for the southeast of the country and London. It was by far the smallest group in geographical terms, but he had seven sectors, and in fact about 22 to 23 squadrons. 12 Group was on his northern flank, commanded by Air Vice Marshal Lee Mallory, with six sectors responsible for it the east of England and the Midland Parklands and the important port of Hull. 13 Group was to the north of 12 Group and covered the north of England, the whole of Scotland, by far the largest in geographical terms, and it had six sectors. So those are the fighter groups. Now let's look at the rest of those elements that came under Downing's command. First, there was Balloon Command, which actually reported to the Air Ministry, but was placed under his operational command. The Balloon Command was commanded by Air Vice Marshal Boyd, and he had five balloon groups across the country. Finally, anti-aircraft artillery, commanded by Lieutenant General Pyle, and he had no less than seven divisions of anti-aircraft artillery across the country. Altogether, really a very large organisation. 
by the start of the war, the enemy could attack almost anywhere at a time and place of his choosing. Dowding could not leave vital targets across the length and breadth of the UK and defend it, and disposed his forces accordingly with the densest concentration in the southeast, 23 squadrons, as I mentioned. He delegated operational control of all operational elements of his command, but did not delegate strategic management of the battle. His command was enormous, with, and I calculated, very rough to calculate, but certainly upwards of 145,000 people under command, which itself places considerable calls upon his time. Even at the start of, before the start of the battle, there were forces gathering to remove Dowding from command. There were, in fact, two targets for the plotters, and initially the main target was the chief of air staff, Cyril Newell, whom it was considered was not a fit leader to take the RAF into battle. Dowding had to build up fighter command in a difficult milieu because he was not a member of the bombing coterie, who believed that bombing was the only raison, and certainly the main raison d'etre of the RAF, and the only effective air defence was to bomb the enemy's airfields into dust. Now, this was a legacy doctrine flowing from Lord Trenshaw, and one that was followed by so many retired and serving air marshals at the time. This was despite the fact that even in 1939, Bomber Command did not have the fighting power to do anything like the weight of attack to neutralise the enemy airfields and defensive infrastructure, and indeed all the ability to drop the bombs with any accuracy. In a similar vein, however, the feelings about Newell, the premise exposed by the plotters was that Dowding was not fit to command the air battle to come. The main protagonist was a former Chief of Air Staff, Marshal of the Royal Air Force, Sir John Salmon. But he was supported by others, including Trenchard himself, albeit in the background. The others were Air Marshal Schubert de la Fette, who was Assistant Chief of Air Staff Signals, responsible for radar and radio in the Air Ministry, and Air Vice Marshal Schulte Douglas, who was Deputy Chief of Air Staff. Because Newell was leaving, and in fact he was quite unwell towards the end of his time, there was a vacuum at the top of the Air Force before Portal took over as Chief of the Air Staff in the November, which put Douglas in a powerful position for an AVM, and Douglas became the eminence grease of the conspiracy as the plot grew. Air Vice Marshal Lee Mallory, whom we've met in 12 Group, took a more prominent role. But it is an unpalatable aspect of this story that Lee Mallory, who was under Dowding's control as AOC 12 Group, took part in this conspiracy. Douglas had befriended Sir Archibald Sinclair when he took up the post of Secretary of State for Air, and Douglas had his ear. Although Dowding and Newell were the targets, once it was known that Newell was on his way, all the plotters' attention was focused really on Dowding. Two pawns in the game were the fighter squadron commander Douglas Bader and his adjutant, who was also a member of parliament, Peter MacDonald. Now, commanders and chiefs are powerful people, and there has to be a demonstrable failure in command or in battle if they are to be removed. There are three strands that were pursued to build the case against Downing's removal. First was how he disposed his forces and his strategic conduct of the battle. Secondly was his failure to embrace and adopt what became known as the Big Wing controversy and employ them as a battle management tactic. And perhaps most importantly, the one that really put the final nail in the coffin was his perceived failure to come to grips with the night battle. 
We have looked briefly at how Dowding disposed his forces and the imperatives that caused him to do so. And historiographical analysis has shown his overall plan to take by the command into battle was very sound. Moreover, his post-war analysis has also shown that his strategic handling of the battle was very good overall. There was, however, a shadow that has been cast over Dowding's command, and that was his failure to act in a timely way to resolve what became a serious issue at the operational control level between his 11 and 12 group commanders. This was a significant failure of command and became a factor in his removal and subsequent treatment by the Air Ministry. This issue became known as the Big Wing Controversy. Now, the Big Wing Controversy is a very complex issue because it has many strands, but simply put, the premise was that 11 group fighters were constantly being outnumbered as they met the enemy on the field of battle. And to outnumber the enemy, the answer was to build a very big wing of between three and five squadrons to act as a single entity. Now, that's between 36 and 60 fighters operating together. On the face of it, it's not an unreasonable approach. And given the right conditions, it could be a very useful battle management tactic. The problem was that the right conditions very rarely presented themselves. And the key issue was time. And time is the Achilles heel of the battle manager. The enemy was very close to Pop's battle area, and he could not allow the enemy to reduce his airfield, and most importantly, his sector command headquarters to rebel. As he had to engage the enemy as far forward as possible, with the triple aim of destroying them. If he couldn't destroy them, disrupting their attack to reduce effectiveness, and then attriting the enemy as they withdrew. With the time pressure, there was no time to form up large formations, which took some time to do and would inevitably allow the enemy to bomb their objective. This meant that he had no option but to stream single squadrons into the attack. When the enemy switched their attacks from airfields to London, and when circumstances presented him more time, he was able to use pairs of squadrons. And occasionally, when the enemy started attacking in waves, the way the enemy attacked was very important in this debate, he was able to use three squadron formations to attack follow-on waves. Apart from the time it took to assemble the big wing, when massed aircraft were in the climb, they were especially vulnerable to attack. And so wings could only be formed in areas where enemy fighters were unlikely to be hunting, which meant they were usually well back from the fighting. And this added even more time before the wing could enter the battle. Moreover, aircraft belonging to one group could not talk to the commanders in another group's battle area and could not be seen by another group if they flew into that group's area. But the tactics of using the big wing as a default response with 12 group wings roaming across 11 groups battle area willy-nil is exactly what squadron leader Barder proposed to his commander, Lee Mallory. Barder was seriously frustrated at not being able to uh, get into the fighting and railed at being kept out of the battle. His ideas, however, about air fighting were very firmly rooted in the First World War. He did not believe in control from the ground and demonstrably did not understand the downing system and especially the need for the control of the air battle. But the responsibility for the hullabaloo that followed does not sit on his shoulders. He was but a pawn. By sanctioning his course of action and in direct contravention to 
his orders from Dowling, Lee Mallory is wholly responsible for the debacle that followed. Lee Mallory was senior to Park and was seriously peeved that 11 Group was getting all the attention. And it seems that he saw the big wing idea as a way for his group to enter the battle and from some of the glory to then fall onto his shoulders. Imagine Park's fury, however. Just look at that when large formations of fighters he could not see or talk to flew through his area. This was nothing short of a recipe for a major disaster, which fortunately did not happen. But it caused enormous and severe disruption to operations in the 11 Group area. The wings were apparently, however, achieving large numbers of kills that indicated the concept was working. And this allowed the concept to gain traction, despite the obvious and numerous fault lines in the ideas, and particularly its execution. Post-war analysis has shown the big wing was ineffective and certainly departed from the principle of war of economy of effort. Moreover, the excessive claims bore no relationship to the reality and any attempts made to employ such tactics in the period when the enemy was intent upon destroying the leadership leading up to the 7th of September. In all probability, the battle would have been lost. This situation combined with other issues, particularly the failure by 12 Group to provide point protection for 11 Group sector airfields north of the Thames, as the group was required to do, led to the airfields being heavily bombed on occasion. And the result was that the two commanders really just ceased to talk to one another. One 12 Group officer recorded that calls between the two groups and with fighter command were infrequent, whereas there were frequent discussions between Lee Mallory and Eminence Grease Sholto Douglas behind Dowding's back. Sholto Douglas used this as another nail to place in Dowding's coffin, but in this case, it is a nail that Dowding could well have prevented being driven home by taking decisive action to resolve the issue. As it is, Lee Mallory was both disloyal and disobedient, and his actions were seriously disruptive to the battle. In any reasoned military judgment, he should have been sacked on the spot, but he was not. He was on the winning team, and winners write the history, and he went on to rise to very senior rank. Dowding had commanded for four turbulent years by the time the battle started, and was running a battle for national survival, as well as running a very large command, as we've seen, but at the same time trying to solve the problem of the night battle. There is no doubt that he was a weary man, and having to fight an internal battle with the air ministry, which was a problem partly of his own making because of his far from tactful responses to ideas flowing from the air ministry, placed Dowding under considerable stress. So this is something that he actually acknowledged in a radio broadcast after the war. The final straw in the case against Dowding was his handling of the night battle, in which he was seen as inflexible and resistant to new ideas. The night battle started in earnest on the 2nd of September 1941, and it became what is known as the Blitz. It was, in fact, in the final months of 1940, the enemy could roam across the country at night with near impunity, despite fielding a growing number of night fighters equipped with airborne interception radar. Sholto Douglas championed a move that harked back to the First World War to use day fighters flying at night, possibly on the basis doing something that was better than nothing. In certain specific conditions, the use of day fighters at night under careful control 
could be made to work, but most Wednesday nights the conditions were simply not present. And hence, using day fighters at night as a matter of course was nothing more than a futile gesture. Downing opposed this idea in the full understanding of the futility of diverting a large number of day fighter squadrons to the night battle. Filtering was a critical process of turning raw radar information into a recognised air picture. And during the air battle, filtering was centralised at fighter command. Onto our stage comes another protagonist, Joubert de la Fête, who had opined that if filtering was decentralised from fighter command to groups, it would speed up track production process and hence enable night interceptions to take place. That's precision interceptions. This was from the Assistant Chief of Air Staff Radio, who should have had an intimate understanding of the Dowding system. But quite simply, the idea was arrant nonsense on a number of counts. And Dowding became very annoyed because uh, trying to rebut the nonsense that Jobert was spreading, which had reached the ears of the Prime Minister, that took a very great deal of his time, and he resented this. Downing was also concerned that decentralisation would take many months and would require many more people to be trained as filters and filter centre personnel. As it was, the increasing number of radars that were being introduced into the line overwhelmed the centralised system and made decentralisation essential. But that was the only reason why it was necessary. And this was started as early as January 1941. But it was not completed until September 1941, some four months after the Blitz had finished. If Lee Mallory understood the errors in Schubert's proposal, there is no record of him correcting the Air Ministry's view. And Sholto Douglas used the idea to mould into what was to be the final nail. As it was, Downing understood that science would produce the answer and was himself going out night after night pursuing the development of units that could achieve precision control of night fighters to place them in the optimum position to detect and destroy enemy aircraft. He was correct, as Sholto Douglas, who took over from him, was to find out. Downing was removed from command on the 24th of November 1940. Two fine officers became collateral damage and they were removed from command. These were Air Vice Marshal Keith Park, the tactical victor of the Battle of Britain, followed by Air Vice Marshal Sir Quinton Brand, who was AFC 10 Group, who was removed in 1941. There can be no doubt that over the winter months, Downing should have been replaced by a new commander to meet the expected spring onslaught. As it was, it was more the manner in which Downing was removed. The discourtesy shown to him and the subsequent way he was treated by the Air Ministry that leaves a stain on its history. The Air Ministry actively opposed any further employment for Downing after his less than successful mission to the US, which was instigated by Churchill. They really wanted rid of this difficult map, despite what he'd achieved. The King suggested that Downing should be made a Marshal of the Royal Air Force. This was rejected by Sinclair, the Secretary of State, presumably supported by Portal, the then CAS with a vague suggestion that it may be something they would consider after the war. It never was. And yet others, like Bomber Harris, were raised to the martial rank for a strategic bombing offence that did not require any real-time battle management skills. Neither Park 
nor Dowding himself were mentioned in the Air Ministry pamphlet on the Battle of Britain published in 1942, something that Churchill railed against. It was Churchill who actually took action to ennoble Dowding as a baron, not the Air Ministry, obviously. Over the years, victorious commanders of great battles have generally been appointed as viscounts or even earls. The only other airman, a noble at the time, however, was Trenchard, and he was a viscount. Given the antipathy that was felt against Dowding in the air ministry, the idea of him being raised to the same level of nobility as Trenchard would not have been a very palatable one. One has to wonder if influence was brought to bear to prevent this. I have no reason to, and have never seen anything substantiate this, but one has to wonder. Attempts were made to play down Downing Dispatch. It was not given wide distribution until quite later on in the war when several senior people actually prompted that it should be given wider circulation. No statue was erected to Downing until 1988. And this was then tucked away in St. Clement Danes. Some people think it's a highly appropriate position. And, and indeed, you know, being the uh, RAF church, it, it has a, a certain appropriateness about it. But when you put it alongside such memorials as Nelson, it is far from being a, as prominent and celebrated memorial to a man who did so much to preserve our nation. Although there is no time to elaborate on the battle management capabilities of Lee Mallory, who took Park's place at 11 Group, when Sholto Douglas took over fighter command from Dowding. Suffice it to say that serendipity looked kindly on Albion when Dowding was appointed to fighter command and when Dowding appointed Park to 11 Group. Excellent. Certainly a lot to think about there. I hadn't realised quite how many sort of comings and goings there were behind the scenes. They were out to get him for quite a while, weren't they? Well, there were, in fact, many more as well who played a part in it, fundamentally towards the end of Dowling's time, and then into 1941. There were a lot of the Air Force board who really, really disliked Dowding. And in particular, things like he was given one further job after his American excursion, on the assistance of Churchill, really. And that was to do an audit of the RAF. But he was opposed almost at every turn in doing that. He was given no cooperation, and indeed some of the air marshals in the air ministry were seriously rude to him. And that's really what tipped the balance and made him say, enough's enough, and basically retire. Because hmm. I went and went did a little bit of research on this, and I looked into the Fabian strategy, which they talk about wearing down the enemy through attrition rather than an all-out battle. It's a very, very interesting point, and one I didn't really dwell on in the big wing controversy, because it's a big underlying issue in the big wing. The big wing itself is a battle management tactic. But because of the constraints in its use, the fact that it had to be formed far back, it took time to form up, the belief in its utility was based on attrition. And a great attritionist was Shelter Douglas. He believed that attrition was the only true tactic. Now, the big wing concept, as it was proposed, the fault lines of it were more in how it was used as a battle management tactic, and then the actual way it was used in battle. And one of the fault lines was the fact that the proposal was to use it as a default response. 
so that every time a large raid appeared, the big wig would be scrambled, irrespective of what the composition of that raid was, what it looked like, you know, whether it was in waves, coming from different directions, all these battle management issues that a battle manager would have to look at and say, this is how I need to respond to this. The concept was to launch it and let the bombers bomb their objective and then hit them in strength as they retreated, and that was the attrition. Mm. The Parks and Dowding's view was, no, you had to hit them before they hit their objective. And if that meant doing it with forces that were outnumbered, then you had to do that. You had to do those three things I had talked about, try to destroy the enemy. Of course, when you were putting in inferior forces, you were not going to do that. But, so the key issue became disruption. You want to disrupt them, to take their bombing runs and to disperse them so the actual weight of munitions that could deliver onto target were less. So that was a key issue in their strategy. And attrition then was the final part of that, that after that then made every effort to attrit the enemy. So the debate was very much based on attrition as a principal tool for countering the enemy or battle management which was what Dowding has set up and ordered and what Park was doing, battle management to actually counter the threat, which obviously is potentially much more effective. And as it proved to be, the big wing was scrambled, I think, 35 times and only made contact with the enemy on a very few of those occasions. The one claim when I think they claimed over 150, they actually got eight. And so all these things played into the argument which is basically, it's a human frailty. The commanders get a mindset. They're not immune to that. They're not superhuman. They get a mindset. And Sholto Douglas's mindset was attrition. And you know, attrition will work. We've got to get these massive fighter formations into the enemy, kill as many as possible. And that was his mindset. And so anything that basically played to that mindset, like the large numbers that were being claimed, of course, reinforce that, and the whole thing gains traction, and he thinks that that is succeeding. Now, of course, <laughs> the danger is that if he'd been in command and followed that, of course, the enemy were not being uh, reduced in anything like the numbers that we're talking about. And so for the whole concept of attrition on that basis was completely flawed. So it's a very key point, but perhaps it's something that needs to be explored more another time, because the whole issue of the big wing, you know, was interlaced with these nuances, if you like, the, the, the argument of attrition versus battle management, the argument of time, the argument of whether bombers should be allowed to hit their objectives, all play into that controversy itself. And of course, Park, I mean, it was vindicated afterwards, wasn't it? Because after the Battle of Britain and did he go out to Malta? Basically, he was offered a job in the air ministry and uh, his experiences, I think, didn't predispose him to that sort of offer. So he returned it down and he was sent to a training command. Let's do a bit of a historical comparison. You could ask almost anybody who has any understanding of history who won the Battle of Gravelines, the Armada. Who was the victor of the Armada? And you invariably get one answer. Give me the answer. Okay. Drake. Drake, exactly. But Drake was the subordinate commander, the principal subordinate commander. The commander-in-chief was Lord Howard. So we have the same situation, but almost in reverse. Dowding was the commander-in-chief, and Park was the operational commander 
who ran the battle, the same as Drake did for the Armada. But the laurels of victory don't sit on Park's head, but he was demonstrably the tactical victor of the Battle of Britain in exactly the same way that the laurels sit on the head of Drake rather than Howard. So the situation is that you take somebody who had done what Drake had done, who was very quickly, you know, fated for what he did, and he was then pushed to a, a very essentially supporting command, important, but, you know, where a man who'd proved himself in battle, a man who, you know, had stood the test, was pushed aside. He was rescued from that and sent to Malta, eventually via Cairo, because, of course, they saw there was a major issue there. And the same applied when he got to Malta. Within weeks, he turned the battle around because he applied tactics that he understood and knew and he understood the enemy and he applied the right tactics. In his words, again, there's a very nice uh, recording after the war he was done by the BBC where he basically said it took him three weeks, I think, to, uh, to turn the battle around and stop the bombing. So, uh, yeah, but really a waste of a good man for a number of years prior to him going to Malta. And when you think about it, people like, and like down, they should be a lot more celebrated than they are. But you know, when the war ended, their face hadn't fitted anymore, had it? So you know, they've kind of been written out to a certain degree. Well, it was very much that there was a you know really quite insidious attempt to really write them out of the battle again. One of the stories about the first publication in 1942 of the Battle of Britain, where you'd expect at least the commanders to be at least doubting to be mentioned, not one mention of him or Park. And there are people who will come to the support of that, and there are all kinds of issues I won't go into. I mean, we could talk about that for another five minutes. But at the end of the day, it's indicative of a mindset. And indeed, the people who won that battle of the removal, if I can put it that way, were in control. And their narrative was that Dowding really didn't do a good job. And Park was, you know, he didn't understand and done a poor job. That was the narrative. So they couldn't really afford really, to fake these people too much. So things like the way he was asked to write his dispatch, which he did, and then it wasn't circulated. It effectively just was not circulated. It was just basically set upon. So there was this underlying theme, you know, that to sideline them. And because Park was never even really discussed, even up until the 70th anniversary when his statue was unveiled, he was little known. The history was not fair to them. I mean, obviously, it's hopefully, we're beginning to try to restore the balance, but, yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. So thank you very much for joining us, Tim. Well, thank you. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.